Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it to his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. Today, I want to speak for a few minutes to this subject, a beautiful mess, a beautiful mess. Let's have a word of prayer together today. God, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. God, thank you for this opportunity that we have on a weekly basis to gather on the Lord's day to worship you. God, I pray that our eyes would always be fixed on you and not our circumstances, and not the culture around us. And Lord, I pray that we would be able to look to your word today. God, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit to give me the words that need to be said today. That would be an encouragement and edification for our church family. And Lord, I pray that we would recognize today that you are always in control. We love you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said today. How many of you would consider yourself to be a clean freak? Anybody like that? You like things very clean, okay? And uh, the majority of you in this room are messy then today, and uh, you just are slobs, I guess. And uh, I tend to be a little bit more on the clean end of things. I like things to be done decently and in order, sometimes to a fault, and uh, I can have a little bit of a kind of one of my idiosyncrasies as I like to have everything together. And so if I'm going to go and work on something, I have to make sure that the environment that I'm in is clean first. And so if I'm going to study for a sermon or if I'm going to read a book, the first thing I do is clean whatever environment that I'm in. I want things to be uh, in order. And uh, sometimes I can be a little bit weird about this. Katie can tell you, even if we're going to watch a movie together, I can't explain it to you, but I enjoy the movie way more if the living room is clean. Anybody with me on that or just, okay. And so uh, I like to make sure that things are, uh, things are clean. If I'm going to go to work, I have to start with a clean environment. What I want you to know this morning is that when God wants to go to work, he does not have to start with a clean environment. So often we think that I've got to clean up my life first, and I've got to have a clean life, and I've got to uh, do this and do that in order for God to use me. But God does not say, clean up your life and then come to me. God says, hey, come to me, and I will clean up your life. Because we worship a God of grace and of mercy. And hey, whatever your past looks like, whether it's shameful and embarrassing and filled with guilt, I want you to know that the gospel can restore, and the gospel can heal, and the gospel can mend the brokenhearted. And our God doesn't have to start in a clean environment that God wants to work even when life looks like a mess. Now, to be clear, God does want us to be holy vessels. To be clear, God does want us to be instruments of righteousness. This is what uh, Paul was telling a young pastor named Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 when he said, but in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth. And some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, that means set apart, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. And so, yes, God wants to enable us and empower us to grow in sanctification so that we can become more like Christ. But never forget the beauty of the gospel is that even when our lives are guilty, his grace is available. And even if our lives look messy, his mercy is available. And even when we are lost, his love is available. Is anybody thankful for the gospel message today that heals the brokenhearted? 
And so this is the power of the gospel, that God can transform us and take any messy situation and make it beautiful according to his timetable and according to his purpose. Now, we come to Genesis chapter 37 today, and we're introduced to uh, this family of Joseph. And this was a messy situation. Uh, this was a dysfunctional family. And uh, you thought your family had some issues, and you thought your family had some drama. Just wait until you find out about Joseph's family, uh, because they had all kinds of issues and all kinds of baggage that they were bringing to the table. But it's in this story, in this narrative of Joseph and his family, that we're going to learn about a powerful theme in Scripture, and that is the providence of God. Now, sometimes we hear that phrase or that word providence, and it sounds somewhat familiar, but we struggle to define it. What is the providence of God? The providence of God is when God chooses to work in ordinary and natural details to accomplish his purpose. And so, in other words, we don't just believe in happenstance or luck. We believe in the providence of God. And so when you uh, get that check in the mail that's un unexpected and it's just in that right moment, that's not just luck. That is God's providence. Uh, when our first service uh, usher, Captain Brian Hunter, when one day he was driving and saw a lowrider and decided to follow it with his son and it led him to Steelworkers Auditorium, which is where we were having a service at the time. That was not just luck. That is the providence of God. And so often in our lives, what looks like coincidence is actually God's providence. And so this is the reoccurring theme in Genesis 37 through 52 as we study the life of Joseph. Now, uh, Joseph is a very unique and interesting character in Scripture. Joseph is one of three characters about whom nothing negative is said. And that's something commendable to say about his life. Joseph, Daniel, and Jesus are the only people about whom nothing negative is said. Of course, Jesus is perfect and sinless. He is the Lamb of God without blemish, without stain. And so we know that Jesus is without sin. The same can't be said about Daniel and Joseph. They were sinners. Uh, but, but what we see is that Joseph was a good and godly man. And his life uh, characterizes 13 chapters in the book of in the book of Genesis. That's 25% of the book of Genesis. How many of you would say that's a pretty big chunk of the book of Genesis? It's interesting when you compare it to all of creation, how that is described in the book of Genesis. Really 10 words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That kind of summarizes the creation and the origin of the world. And so creation really takes 10 words, but the life of Joseph takes 13 chapters. If it were up to us, we might reverse those two. Because we are interested in origins, and we want to know how did things get started, and we want to know where we came from, and we have those questions. But I want you to know today that God is supremely interested in the individual, that God loves people. And he's going to take 13 chapters in the opening book of the Bible to uh, give us uh, an example of this man's life. And ultimately, the life of Joseph is going to point us ahead to the life of Jesus. Because I want to remind you today that all of the Bible is about one person. His name is Jesus Christ. It's not just disconnected stories that, uh, that we try to piece together. No, it's all pointing ahead. The Old Testament is pointing ahead to Jesus. And in the New Testament, we have Jesus revealed. And so in this study... We're going to look at the life of Joseph, and there's going to be times when uh, we see Joseph as a symbol, as a type of Christ, that he's a shadow, and we can see some similarities between Joseph and Jesus, because Joseph is ultimately going to point us to Jesus. But what I want to do today is I want to give us four reminders when life gets messy, all right? So when life gets messy, dysfunctional, four reminders. Are you ready today? Four reminders. Number one is this. God knows right where he placed you. God knows right where he placed you. Let's pick it up in verse number one. 
And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger. Everybody say stranger. stranger. Now, that word means traveler, uh, a sojourner. That, that word should point us ahead to Peter's instruction in, in the book of 1 Peter when he refers to followers of Jesus as strangers and pilgrims. Uh, that this world is not our home, but we're just passing through. We're just foreigners on a journey. Can I remind you today that ultimately, if you're a follower of Christ, your citizenship is not in Rancho Cucamonga or in Fontana or in Upland. Uh, your citizenship is in heaven. And we are just passing through as strangers and as pilgrims. And it's very important that we don't start to settle in where we don't belong. I see so many Christians today looking for comfort, looking for ease, looking for the perfect utopian society and the perfect place to live comfortably. But God did not call us to live comfortably. God called us to live for eternity and to prioritize eternal things. Why? We're just passing through. We're just strangers and pilgrims on a journey. And so we're introduced to Jacob and his family and uh, uh, where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. Verse number two says this. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, plural, and Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. So right off the bat in verse number two, we're introduced to the dysfunction of this family. Whenever there's a family with four mothers and 12 brothers, you're bound to have some problems, okay? Uh, things are bound to get messy. There's going to be some awkward dinner conversations and some fights in the family, right? Uh, this was a dysfunctional family. Joseph's dad was a deceiver, Jacob. Joseph's uncle, Esau, tried to kill his dad. Joseph's brothers were murderers. Joseph's dad completely ignored God's plan for marriage. And so you see right off the bat, this was not a healthy family. This was not, uh, this was not an easy upbringing for Joseph. I want to remind you today that the same is true about Jesus Christ. He did not have an easy upbringing. If you consider the birth of Jesus Christ, Jesus was born in a feeding trough in Bethlehem. Jesus had to uh, run as a refugee to Egypt so his life would be spared as a young child. Jesus' earthly mother and father were very poor. Uh, they were criticized. They grew up in the, in the rejected town of Nazareth. And so uh, from a human standard and from a human perspective, it looked like these were not ideal circumstances. And I hope that today you can find a little bit of encouragement because it does not matter what your family situation looks like. It does not matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what kind of education you have or what up bringing you might have. God knows right where he placed you and he wants to use you for his glory right where you are. And so often what we do is we will use our family situation or we will use our dysfunction as an excuse to not move forward in God's plan. We will let our dysfunction define us or even worse, we will let our dysfunction disable us. But I want you to know today that it doesn't matter what uh, situation or season of life you might be in. God knows right where he placed you. God knew that Joseph was 17. God knew that Joseph had a messed up family situation and that his brothers were murderers. But God wanted to use him right where he was. So what did Joseph do in the middle of this dysfunction? Well, I think he did two things that are helpful for us on a practical level. First, Joseph stayed active. Did you see in verse number two? Uh, notice what it says in verse two. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock 
with his brethren. Now, that might have seemed like an insignificant task. That might have seemed kind of mundane. But what we find Joseph as a young man, as a teenager, he was faithfully carrying out the assignment that God had given him. Even though there was dysfunction in his family, he decided, you know, he decided, you know what? I'm going to keep on being faithful in what my father has asked me to do. He stayed active. The Bible says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. You might be in the middle of a dysfunctional situation. You might, you might find yourself right in the middle of a mess. And I would encourage you to keep on obeying and keep on being faithful to what God has called you to do. Don't let your dysfunction keep you from showing up and serving on a Sunday. Don't let a messy situation keep you from the house of God. Joseph was in the middle of dysfunction, but he stayed active. You know what else Joseph did? He stayed accountable. Notice the end of verse number two. It says, and Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now, at first glance, it seems like Joseph's being a tattletale, right? Nobody likes a tattletale. Snitches get stitches, right? Nobody, nobody likes a tattletale. But I think that when you study the integrity and the character of Joseph's life, perhaps we could come to a different conclusion. Maybe the reason Joseph shared the evil report with his father was because something needed to be shared. Perhaps the brothers were doing something that was harmful to the family name. Perhaps they were doing something that was harmful to God's name. Perhaps they were doing something that was causing the family, uh, costing the family money. And so Joseph goes and he tells his father. Why? Please hear me. He was far more concerned with what his father thought than what his brothers thought. Can I encourage you, the same should be true in our lives, that we should be far more concerned with the approval of our heavenly father than we are the approval of man. So often we find ourselves busy in life trying to please everyone and trying to please people and trying to please this crowd and trying to please that crowd and trying to appease this situation when what we should be doing is seeking to please God, the one that has chosen us to be a soldier, the one that has enlisted us into the fight and say, you know what, I can't please everybody, I'll fail every time. I'm going to aim to please the audience of one, Jesus. And so Joseph was carrying out his assignment. And he was being accountable. And I think there's such great just practical wisdom there. If you're in the middle of a messy situation, do what God has called you to do and aim to please your heavenly father. That's what we should do. Now, notice verse number three. It says this in our text. Everybody still with me today? Notice verse three. It says, now Israel, uh, Joseph's father, Jacob, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Now, we're going to talk about this in a moment. But Jacob loved Joseph. He was the the favorite. And what we see is that Joseph was the beloved son. And again, I think we see a glimpse pointing ahead to Jesus because I want you to know that Jesus is also the beloved son. Do you remember at the baptism of Jesus when the Spirit of God descending like a dove was present and God the Father spoke and we see all three components and all three persons of the Trinity in that scene at Jesus' baptism. Jesus is being baptized and God the Father speaks from heaven. Do you remember what God the Father said? He said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You know what's interesting about that statement? The baptism of Jesus was at the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. It was right at the outset, right at the commencement of Jesus' earthly ministry, which means Jesus had not performed a public miracle or or Jesus had not began his public ministry yet. And yet God the Father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He was pleased with Jesus 
before he even did anything. His love for Jesus was not based on what he did. His love for Jesus was based on who he was. Can I tell you that God the Father loves you, not based on your performance, but based on your position in the family. You are a son or a daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so we can stop trying to earn favor and stop trying to perform, but we can rest in his love. And so Joseph is in the middle of a messy situation, but we have to understand right from the outset that God knows exactly where he placed him. This leads us to our second thought today. There will be those that stand against you. God knows right where he placed you, what church you're in, what neighborhood you're in, where your cubicle is at work. He knows right where he placed you. And we have to recognize that there will also be those that stand against us. Now, the Bible says this in 1 Corinthians 16, verse number 9. For a great and effectual, for a great door and effectual is open unto me. A great opportunity is before me, Paul says. An open door of opportunity. And there are many adversaries. In other words, anytime there's an open door, there will also be opposition. Anytime you try to step out in the calling that God has for you and you want to follow in obedience, just know that there will be some adversaries. There will be some people that stand against you. Now, let's see how this unfolds in verse number three. It says, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and they could not speak peaceably unto him. And so the brothers already knew that Jacob, that Joseph was the favorite and they hated him because Joseph was the favorite. Now, if anyone should have known the dangers of favoritism, it should have been Jacob. If anyone should have known how dangerous favoritism can be in a family, it should have been Jacob. Because if you recall, Jacob's father, Isaac, also had a favorite, and it wasn't Jacob. And so Jacob should have known about the pain that favoritism brings. Can I tell you that favoritism always brings pain? And rather than learn from the mistake of his father, he ends up committing the same exact sin. There's a word of admonition here for parents. Because if we're not careful, uh, we will leave a bad example and our children will emulate that example. Many times children will follow in the footsteps of their parents and end up committing the exact same sins. Sometimes unwittingly. And so we have to be very careful and take that calling seriously as parents to make sure that we are leaving the right example for children to follow in. And so what we see is Jacob uh, was playing favorites. That caused the brothers to hate Joseph. Now, uh, Jacob gives Joseph this famous coat. And, and throughout uh, history, there's been a lot that's been said about this coat. How many of you are familiar with the coat of many colors that, that Jacob gave Joseph? I believe the most significant thing that we need to know about this coat in the Hebrew, it's kethoneth, and it means that the coat or the tunic went all the way down to the ankles, okay? And so even more significant than the brightness of the colors, I believe, is the length of the garment. The reason why that's significant is because a working man in this culture would have never worn a long tunic all the way down to the ankles, A working man would wear a shorter tunic because you'd be able to move easier and you'd be able to work better and more mobile in in a shorter tunic. And so to wear a long one uh, was symbolic. It was this, it was a symbol of of status and, and privilege. And you wouldn't wear that to go and work and perform physical and manual labor. It would be like showing up to work in a tuxedo. You'd be overdressed. And so what Jacob is essentially telling his son Joseph by giving him this coat of many colors that went all the way down to the ankles was this. You're not going to have to work in the same capacity as your brothers. 
And so now you can start to understand why his brothers hated him so much. Because while they were performing hard, physical, manual labor, they're looking over at Joseph, their brother, in a long tunic who doesn't have to work in the same capacity. And they're thinking, this is not equitable. This is not fair. We're over here working hard, and we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. And there's Joseph over there. He's not working near as hard as I'm working, and yet Dad is showing him all the favor. Dad loves him. Why? We're working way harder. Our schedule is way more intense. We're getting up early. We're going to bed late. What is Joseph doing? Why is he earning all the favor with Dad? And I think if we're not careful we will find ourselves in a very similar situation in life. When we start to look horizontally and start to question the goodness of God towards other people. Why is that person being blessed? My schedule is way more difficult than them. I can't believe they got a new car. I've been saving for a new car for a long time, and they all of a sudden just get a new car. Uh, I've been working overtime. I've been working as hard as I can. Why is that coworker getting all the recognition? Why are they getting the promotion? Uh, why are they earning favor? Look at what I'm doing. That kind of comparison will always lead to bitterness. Bitterness will always lead to resentment, and resentment will rob your joy and mess up your life. That is why the Bible says, they that compare themselves among themselves are not wise. And so here is Joseph, gets this gift from his father. His brothers see it, uh, see it as, as, as a weakness that he doesn't have to work as hard, and now they hate him. They couldn't even speak peaceably to him, the Bible says. That means they couldn't even say the customary shalom as they passed by him. They couldn't even look in his direction. They hated him. There was this deep-rooted resentment. And so already, Joseph, at a young age, as a teenager, he knows what it's like to be hated. He knows what it's like to be criticized. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to walk alone. He knows what it's like to have people reject him. But I want you to know in life, whenever we step out to accomplish God's will, we want to follow him in obedience. And when people reject us and when people don't get the calling that God has put on our lives, we have to remember that there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And that Jesus Christ will never leave us and he'll never forsake us. And so when we are rejected of men, we can remember that our ultimate aim is to please our Heavenly Father. And so Joseph and his brothers, uh, they, they hated him all the more. This leads us to our third thought today. There will be those that stand against you, but number three is this. God still has a plan for you. Now, this is a word of encouragement for somebody today because even if people are standing against you, and even if the enemy is attacking you, just know that has not uh, voided God's plan for your life. God still has a plan for you. Uh, notice verse number five. It says, and Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it to his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. Now, Joseph dreamed a dream. Now, we have to pause and understand the significance of this. Up until this point in the book of Genesis, God had previously spoken to people through dreams. In fact, I believe this is the fourth time that God was speaking to someone through a dream. And so Joseph was not just having a Joseph dream, a man-made youthful imagination dream. This was God speaking to him through a dream. Uh, this is significant because this tells us that at the outset of this narrative, Joseph is not the hero of the story. God is the hero of the story. All right, so, so the story of Joseph is not a story of human success. Okay, it's not like, let's all be more like Joseph today. It's always, let's be more like Jesus today. And so the story of Joseph is not a story of human success. The story of Joseph is a story of divine sovereignty. And at the outset of the story, God is speaking to Joseph through 
a dream. Joseph couldn't just turn to Genesis 37 and hear from God. And, and I believe uh, that, that God is speaking to us today just as he was speaking to Joseph through a dream. God is speaking to us today through his word. And anytime you want to hear from God, you can open up his word and, and read the messages and hear what God has to say. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How can we hear God's voice? How can we tune into God's voice? We tune into his word. And so Joseph dreams a dream. And he's going to tell it to his brothers. Notice verse number six. And he said unto them, here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. Now, some people think that Joseph was kind of a, a young, naive teenager. Maybe perhaps he should not have shared his dream. He should have just kind of kept it to himself. I don't believe that's the case because I believe that when Joseph's dreams did come to fruition and they did come to pass, if Joseph hadn't shared those dreams, how would anyone have known what God had spoken to him and see that these dreams came to pass? And so I believe Joseph had God speak to him, the dream came to him, and then went through him. By the way, the same should be said in our lives about the word of God. The word of God should come to us, and then the word of God should go through us. And so Joseph is going to go and tell his brothers this dream. Now, of course, we're going to see they didn't respond well, but Joseph is going to go and tell his brothers this dream. And in so doing, in this dream that God speaks to him, we see three things about God's plan. I want to share them today. Would that be okay? Three things about God's plan and God's will. First, it might be confusing. When it comes to God's plan, when it comes to God's will, it might be confusing. Notice verse number seven. And behold, for behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. What? Come again? Joseph's like, guys, I had this crazy dream, and my sheaf, you know, the wheat in the field, my sheaf was standing up tall and all of your sheaves around me started to bow down before me. Now, I'm the youngest. I have an older brother and two older sisters. If I shared this dream with them, I'm pretty sure that they would not only think I was crazy, but they would completely dismiss that dream right away, okay? Like, okay, Matt, get out of here. Joseph dreams this dream, and it doesn't quite compute with him. I mean, what does this mean? Uh, having a dream about sheaves and, and, and my, my brothers are bowing down before me. And the brothers understood the significance of this dream. Okay, no, notice verse 8. We know that they understood it because it says, And his brethren said unto him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And so the interpretation was clear to the brothers. They understood that this was a dream of prominence and power and position. And they said, you're going to reign over us? We're going to bow down before you? I don't know about that, Joseph. And you can imagine Joseph is trying to process all of this, and it would have been hard to understand. God was saying, Joseph, I have such a big plan for your life, a plan of power, a plan of position, a plan of prominence, an amazing plan that you can't even fully comprehend right now. Might have been confusing at first. I read recently that Bill Gates, one of the richest men in the world, he considers one of his greatest assets in life is his willingness to be confused. His willingness to be confused. Because he says, I don't shy away from confusion. If, if, if there is curiosity in my life, I allow that curiosity to fuel activity until I can solve whatever it is that's before me. And so he doesn't shy away from confusion. I thought about that and I thought, you know, spiritually speaking, so often our struggle is we don't like to be confused. And we avoid confusion. Here's our problem. If something confuses us, we just won't do it. 
If I can't figure out how to get tithe to fit in my budget, it's confusing. I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. I just won't do it. If I can't figure out how to get God in my schedule and go to small group and go to, go to church faithfully on Sunday, and if I can't fit, fit it in there, uh, I'm just not going to do it. I wonder today, what is your comfort level with confusion? Because I believe that our ability to tolerate confusion will determine what God wants to do through us. Because 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. In other words, confusion is guaranteed. There will be some times in life in your faith journey that you're going to have to take a step back and say, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know why the sheaves are bowing down to me. I don't know why I'm a sheep. I'm not really even sure what a sheaf is. I don't, I don't know what's going on right now in my life, but I'm going to trust God anyways. I'm going to step out by faith and say, even when it doesn't make sense to me, God, you are still faithful. You are still sovereign. You are still in control. And so even when I don't get it, even when I'm confused, God, I'm going to continue to walk forward. That's what the faith life looks like. Joseph didn't quite understand this dream. But he had to walk by faith. Not only can God's plan be confusing, God's plan can also be confrontational. Confrontational. How many of you like confrontation? Anybody like that? How many of you are like, I avoid confrontation at all costs? All those that didn't raise your hand. Like, I don't even. Notice verse number nine. Everybody still with me? And he dreamed yet another dream. All right, so here we go again. Here's another dream. And he told it to his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. Bow down before me. Now, uh, this was uh, essentially the same dream, different details. So he has the same dream uh, that uh, they're going to bow down before him. And so he tells his brothers. Verse number 10. And he told it to his father. Now, pause right there for a second. If anyone should have understood Joseph in this moment, it was Jacob, his father. If anyone should have understood the importance of a God dream, it was Jacob. Because Jacob also received a message from God through a dream. Remember Jacob's dream, Jacob's ladder, the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Uh, Jacob knew what it was like to have God speak to him through a dream. And so if anyone should have understood Joseph in this moment, it was Jacob, his father. Not only that, Joseph was Jacob's favorite. And so Joseph was thinking, I know that my brothers hate me. I know they don't care about my dreams. I know they don't care about God's plan for my life, but surely dad will. I remember hearing stories about dad and that ladder, and I'm excited to go and tell him about this dream that I've had. And so Joseph goes to his father, verse 10, and he told it to his father and to his brethren, and his father rebuked him. And so what do we do in life when those that are the closest to us let us down? What do we do in life when those people that we thought would be in our corner and we thought that they would support us and we thought that they would understand what we're going through and they reject us? Have you ever been there? Where you had a relationship and you thought, surely they're going to get this and surely they're going to be in my corner on this and surely they're going to help me and then they're not? This is Joseph. Surely dad's going to understand. And his father rebuked him. This was a confrontational moment. There will be times when you step out by faith to follow God's plan and you're going to experience opposition and confrontation and there will be times when those closest to you let you down. Paul had a moment like this in the New Testament. Uh, Paul said this in 2 Timothy 4, 16. At my first answer, no man stood with me. Nobody was with me. Didn't have a friend in my corner. All men forsook me. 
I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. By the way, that's mercy. Hey, they rejected me, but I'm not going to reject them. I wonder what would happen if we developed that kind of mindset. Hey, I know they wronged me. I know they were mean to me, but I'm going to show them mercy. I'm going to forgive. Notwithstanding, watch this, the Lord stood with me. Don't you love that? Paul says, even in this difficult moment when Demas forsook me and my friends forsook me and I was standing all by myself, nevertheless, in that moment, the thing that I was confident in is the Lord stood by my side. That is something that you and I can say with confidence in life, that no matter who rejects us, no matter who's mean to us at church, no matter what uh, unkind thing our boss says, no matter what kind of relational opposition we experience in life, that our Heavenly Father is always by our side, and Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. Aren't you thankful for that today? And so there will be those that stand against us, and God still has a plan for us, and this plan can be confusing, it can be confrontational, but it can also be challenging, all right? Uh, sometimes following God's plan is not always easy and comfortable. Sometimes there's going to be a challenge to it. I want you to see what happens next uh, in, in the narrative t- uh, together today. Everybody still with me? Notice verse 12. We're going to skip verse 11 for a second. We're going to come back to it. Don't worry. Verse 12. And his brother went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. Now, if you were here last week, uh, we learned a little bit about this place, Shechem or Shalem. This was the place where Joseph's brothers, Simeon and Levi, went and killed every male in the city. How many of you remember that from last week? Uh, this, was, this was not a good place. And so the brothers go to Shechem, and they're feeding the flock there. And Joseph's dad is going to tell him to go and check up on them. Okay, verse 13. And Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said to him, Here am I. Joseph was willing to go. And he said to him, Go, I pray thee, see uh, whether it be well with my brethren. And well with thy flocks, and bring me word again. So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Now, Shechem was about 60 miles away uh, from Hebron, from where uh, Joseph was. And this would have been a scary journey. I mean, the people of Shechem hated Jacob and his family. And so if you're going to go uh, by yourself as a 17-year-old wearing a long tunic into a dangerous territory, this was not a great combination for Joseph, okay? And, and, and Joseph was willing. He was willing. He said, okay, I'll go. Here am I. What do you want me to do, Dad? That's what I'm going to do. And so he goes to Shechem. He kind of gets lost along the way and uh, not really sure where he's supposed to go. And he, and he finds someone there. Notice verse number 15. And a certain man found him. And behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, what seekest thou? And he said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And the man said, they are departed hence. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren, and he found them. At Dothan. Now, Dothan was another 12 miles from Shechem. So Joseph had to take this 72-mile journey to go and find his brothers. Now, this is not a big, magnificent moment in his life. This is not a big, uh, significant moment in his life. But what we see here is that Joseph was willing to be faithful in the little things. This was a challenging journey. A scary journey, but Joseph was willing to do the little things. Now think about it. God had just given him a big dream of position, of power, of prominence. You're going to see God do some great things, Joseph. But first, you've got to take the mundane and boring trip to Shechem. And when you get there, you're still going to be confused. Nothing's going to happen. You're not going to feel anything. You're not going to have any goosebumps. And then you've got to go to Dothan. See, so often this is the part of God's plan that we want to avoid. We want the power, the prominence, the position. We want the big dreams. 
But we don't like making the journey to Shechem. We don't like making the journey to Dothan. Why? It's lonely. We're by ourselves, and uh, not a whole lot is going on. But God wants us to be faithful even in the little things, even in the mundane things. We have to be willing to go slow before we can go fast. I was reading recently about uh, the Saturn V rocket that launched up into space in the late uh, 1960s. And I think we have a picture of it. Uh, the Saturn V rocket, this is an unbelievable rocket that would eventually take uh, man to the moon. And NASA was struggling when this rocket was built. They had this problem that they needed to solve. They needed to figure out how to get this rocket uh, to the launch pad, which was three miles away. How do you take a massive rocket that weighs 6 million pounds, is 36 stories high, how do you transport this, okay? Uh, you can't just throw it in the back of a pickup truck and just take it over. So how do you move this? And so what NASA did was they built something. It was the first of its kind. It was the largest land vehicle ever made up until that point. And it was called the, uh, the, the, the Crawler Transporter. I think we have a picture of it. They built this vehicle to transport the Saturn V rocket to the launch pad. Now, here's the irony uh, of this crawler transporter. This rocket, when it would eventually take man to the moon, it would travel at speeds of up to 25,000 miles per hour, incredibly fast. But the crawler transporter literally could only go one mile per hour, one foot per second. And the driver still wore a seatbelt. It had to move extremely, extremely slow. See, this rocket would go off to do incredible things, 25,000 miles per hour, but first it had to be going very, very slow. Can I tell you today that God wants to do something incredible in your life, but before you can go fast, you first have to go slow. You have to be willing to walk patiently, to wait patiently, to take one step at a time, so often we want to rush into the will of God and we want to experience all the blessings at once. But God says, first go to Shechem. First go to Dothan. You'll never be able to launch out and experience what God wants you to experience if you never make it to the launch pad. We've got to be willing to go slow. That's why Jesus said, be faithful in that which is little and then you can be faithful in that which is much. And so what do we learn about God's plan? We learn that God's plan can be confrontational, it can be confusing, sometimes it's challenging, but it's always worth it. God's plan is always worth it. And this leads us to our fourth and final thought today. Do you have one more in you? Here's the fourth thought. It's really not about you. So we learned that there's going to be those that stand against us. God knows right where he placed you, that God has a plan for you, but I hate to break it to you, it's really not about you. The story of Joseph is not really all about Joseph. It's much bigger and much greater than that. So often in life, it's like, what's in it for me? And, and, and how can I be blessed? And, and my plan, how does it fit into this? And my agenda and what I want to do. But it's much bigger than that. And I want to go back to verse number 11, the verse that we skipped over a second ago. Everybody still with me? Verse 11. And his brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying. He thought about it. I love this little phrase. That yeah, his father rebuked him. Yeah, his brothers were envious of him, but his father observed the saying. And I'm so glad that he did. Because later on in Joseph's life, when he got promoted in, into that position of power and prominence there in Egypt, and when there was a famine in the land, and when Joseph's brothers came back to him, and he was able to feed them and save their entire family, in that moment, Jacob remembered those words that he observed. 
he remembered those dreams. And in that moment, he realized those dreams weren't really about Joseph. Those dreams were about the salvation of our family. And what we thought was Joseph just being a naive teenager, God was actually speaking to him in a powerful way that was bigger than Joseph, and it was for the salvation of our entire family. Can I encourage you today that life is not really all about you? It's not all about me and my desires and what I want and what I can accomplish. There are more people in the Inland Empire that need to hear about the life-giving and life-changing message of Jesus. There are more people that need to hear about the glory of God. There are more churches that need to be planted and more missionaries that need to be sent out. There are more servants that need to go out into the harvest. Hey, it's much bigger than any one of us. There's more people that need to know about the gospel message. It's not really about us. You know, I think it's interesting that at the beginning of Joseph's life, he was hated for his dreams. But at the end of his life, Joseph found favor in interpreting someone else's dreams. You know, the best way to see your dreams come to fruition is to help someone else accomplish theirs. When you say, you know what, okay, it's not all about me, what I want. But let me listen to you. How can I pray for you? How can I love you? How can I serve you? How can I be an others first Christian? Joseph would end up being a temporary savior for his family. But again, he points us ahead to the ultimate savior of all of humanity, Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible says this in 2 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Who his own self, Jesus, bear our sins in his own body on the tree, on the cross of Calvary, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. I'm thankful today that when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, His righteousness gets placed on our behalf, on our account. That is such good news because that means that we don't have to get caught up in religion and try to earn a way to heaven and to earn God's love. So many people today, they try to be righteous and they try to do good deeds, but the Bible says in the Old Testament that our righteousness is as filthy rags. You can try to be the best possible person you can, and you can try to check every box on the list, but we will still all fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. But when we accept the free gift of salvation, we soon realize it's not about our own righteousness. The righteousness of God is placed on our account. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. This is the greatest exchange in all of history. And then he says, by whose stripes you were healed. And so today, if you've never experienced a real relationship with Jesus Christ, if you don't know that Jesus Christ is your Savior, if you're watching online today and you don't know that Jesus Christ is your Savior, I want you to know you can trust him. You can put your faith in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Maybe today you're struggling financially. Maybe you find yourself in the middle of a mess relationally. Maybe you're in a mess when it comes to your family, when it comes to your workplace. And I want to encourage you with this final verse. And as I read this verse, would you join me in standing today? Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says this. He, God, hath made everything beautiful in his time. 
see in your life what might look like a mess, God can transform into a miracle because he can make everything beautiful in his time. And so let's keep on being faithful. Let's keep on going slow, being patient, and let's trust that God is in control even when it doesn't make sense to us. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes today.